The Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. Beneath everything, what motivates all animals on Earth? Food and sex. When there is a perceived scarcity of food, people find sudden courage to fight on the streets. The initial Russian Revolution of 1905 was women, mothers desperate for food. And now, with our bellies full, the new Trumpized Republican Party is all about reasserting white, heterosexual male dominance and control. They are united by the deep personal terror of becoming a religious and sexual minority in mid-21st century America. But as our guest today, Janet Jacobson, author of The Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics, says, Narrowing sex to religious conservatism impoverishes our political possibilities. The sex obsession, of which she writes, contributed mightily to the initiation of the culture wars. The vision of naked, tripping hippies scared the bejesus out of the mid-20th century conservative white Christian community. And the threat of uh, sexual, the, the sexual threat of black and white kids dancing together to rock and roll music similarly riled them up. Today, they have a champion in the White House. Is it even possible that sexual attitudes and our politics might not be divisive? Could an expanded perspective on the subject have the effect of recasting it as a means of cultivating social justice? In her introduction, the first thing she asks is, what does sex have to do with social justice? Why are gender and sexuality such riveting public concerns in the United States? Why and how does this drive a seemingly endless culture war? What kind of unique to America, so-called religion makes to moral regulation of sexuality such a powerful force. What is this, as you say, Christian hegemony? And why is there such contempt for anything and anyone outside of that exceptionally narrow barrier? Janet Jacobson is Claire Tao, Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College, Columbia University, where she's also served as director of the Center for Research on Women and Dean for Faculty Diversity and Development. She's the author of Working Alliances and the Politics of Difference, Diversity and Feminist Ethics, and the co-author with Anne Pellegrini of Love the Sin, Sexual Regulation, and the Limits of Religious Tolerance. Janet Jacobson, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. And let me ask, first off, what prompted you to write this book, and who is the intended audience? Oh, thanks so much. First of all, thanks so much for having me uh, to talk about the book, and I just love your introduction and and how you were able to pull out uh, um, some key points right away. Uh, In terms of writing the book, I, uh, as you noted in my bio, had been doing administrative work at my college. I was the director of a center for research on women, uh, which I had done for 15 years from 2000 to 2015, um, and that I had also during that time served as a dean and the like, and I stepped down 
from those positions in 2015 to become a regular faculty member and return to my research. And that was the year uh, that the Obergefell decision on um, same-sex marriage uh, had passed the Supreme Court. Uh Um, And then, of course, uh, very shortly, it was the year that started the presidential election that we saw in 2016. Mm. Um, And so I, you know, started at that moment, although the book... um, uh, takes up histories that run back to the 1970s and and um, even you know make references to the 1960s to the politics that you talked about in the opening. Uh, but I wanted to say, given my um, uh, previous scholarship and and the research that I've done in both women's gender and sexuality studies and my PhD is in religious studies, what the heck is going on? <laughs> um, and so that was uh, the start of the book and. As I said, it led in a lot of different directions. There's a chapter on um, same-sex marriage cases in relation to other types of cases, those on affirmative action, um, those related to voting rights, which are, again, key this mm-hmm. year. Um, there, you know, there's a chapter on uh, uh, histories going back to the 70s. There's a chapter on sort of what are the commonsensical narratives about how uh, sexual politics works in the U.S., uh, but um, the basic question was for me to see if I could um, say something helpful about what was happening around us and what turned out to be a very tumultuous time. Boy, tumultuous. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good word for it. It's no, It could be many different words. The title of the book, and it's a black cover with bright red lettering with the word <laughs> sex in big letters. That ought to help. <laughs> the title is The Sex Obsession perversity and possibility in American politics. To start out, those two words, perversity and possibility. Perversity is, what does that mean? It's quite a loaded word. It seems for those who claim to be religious conservatives, a tremendous part of commonplace sex is perverse. What do you mean by perversity? I'm confused by that. Well, um, and, uh, you know, part of it was um, to, you know, sort of try to draw out uh, something that you mentioned in the opening, which is, can we think about this differently? Uh, So can we take a word by perverse, like perversity, which is generally taken to mean um, something that is either um, improper, mostly in ethical or political terms, or it's taken to mean something that, um, uh, you know, has some messed up psychodynamic to it. Mm. Um, and I tried to think those things in relation to, do we have to have that moral valence about what we think about? Um, the boundaries, one of the things I found out very early in, in doing the research is the boundaries of how we think about sexuality in the United States are very narrow in relation to how people live their lives. Um, and they may be even more narrow about how people could live their lives um, if we had a, a political situation that was more supportive um, of the ability to uh, sustain and care for one another. Um, and so um, part of what I'm trying to do is to flip the meaning of perversity and look at what possibilities open up once that happens. Uh, yeah, liberty, that would be nice. Freedom. Uh, getting out from under oppression. You know, there's been, it used to be for the longest time, gay people were looked down on as less than, as perverse. We've had some great, amazing uh, people who have been gay and have had their lives destroyed just for the fact that they are gay. Uh, You write that the standard account of religion and sex is not only misleadingly simplistic, but also 
damaging to both ethical and political possibilities. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is um, if we take uh, major ethical terms, freedom, justice, care, um, and look at how we treat people around sexual practice and sexual politics, we find that, in fact, we do not embrace sexual freedom in this country. I, I, I dare you to find a politician who really is of the mainstream who does say, yes, what I'm for is sexual freedom, all kinds of freedom, and all kinds of freedom that may be damaging, including um, uh, you know, things like firearms, but not sexual freedom. Uh, similarly, with justice, there have been some moves toward um, equality around sexual politics, but mostly sexuality is invoked in order to um, control and constrain our public discourse. Uh-huh. Um, and similarly, around caring for each other, and in, in, I, I uh, uh, went to graduate school at a time when the politics of caring was a big issue, and it's becoming so again, um, because this question of how do we sustain each other, for example, through this pandemic, is a really important one. And most of the ways in which we arrange sexual politics make it harder, not easier, for us to care for each other. Wow. Interesting point. So that really does keep us separate and, and as a barrier to uh, caring for one another. Interesting point. Yeah. Now, sociology professor Kelsey Burke researched Christian evangelical websites and found that for them, quote, godly sex is where married men and women follow typical gender roles. While it is common that evangelical men are interested in what some would describe as unconventional sex, what's the deal with that kind of hypocrisy that we see so often. Yes, well, and uh, many, many things. Um, but one of the things that, that I really try to make a point of in the, in the book is that it's important to think of this as a sexual politics. Um, and what I mean by that is this, that for some people, they have a sexual ethics that they aspire to in their own lives, and they may or may not be able to live up to it. For other people, they take what they understand to be that sexual ethic and project it onto the country as a whole and try to use the force of law in order to get other people who may not share their ethical or indeed their religious commitments to have to live that way as well. Um, And one of the things that's become quite odd um, uh, since 2016 is most of that trying to get other people to have to do uh, meet a sexual ethic that they may not share is done under the name of religious freedom, which we can talk about later. Um, and so thinking about that political move of saying, look, I have a sexual ethic I may or may not live up to. That's one thing. But I also believe other people who don't share my commitments need to live up to this by the force of law or be variously shamed and, and mm. uh, marginalized in society. That's a sexual politics. Um, so when we only think about it in terms of hypocrisy, it becomes harder to trace the political move. Um, and uh, I think that's important. You know, one of the main questions is, why should one group of people's commitments tell everyone through the force of law how they should conduct their sexual mm-hmm. lives? I never could figure out how any one marriage affects any other marriage. I gay, straight, right, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Each one has its challenges, Lord knows. Now, back in college, yes, a long time ago, I had never read anything like Love's Body by Norman O. Brown. Back then, it was, it was pretty bold, and it challenged the orthodoxy, which was then bracketing acceptable limits of human sexual behavior. It was a statement on repression in our culture in general. Uh, and I'll never forget, Brown advocated what he called polymorphous perversity, where each individual believes he or she is entitled 
to his or her what he called sexual preference, I would say orientation, but that was a long time ago, where it is considered offensive to morally judge an individual's sexual lifestyle, however eccentric it may seem. Brown argued that humans' unhappiness is caused in part by the fact that he had desires in nature which are not satisfied by culture. Interesting point. I think Brown suggested the possibility of changing reality rather than merely accepting it. How does what he was saying mesh with your observations? Does it mesh? And if so, how? Yes, I think it does. I mean, I um, uh, I'm gonna uh, I took a look at, at Brown again, but I'm gonna try to um, uh, do this a little from memory that he was working in a Freudian framework, and yeah. uh, Freud is certainly uh, talking about the relationship between polymorphous perversity that people are essentially born with, in Freud's view, um, where you have to, over time as a child, come to organize your body. You don't know initially that your feet are your feet, right? The the sense that an infant has to come to learn its own body, including its sexual body, um, and that that sort of openness to an erotics of in, um, the whole body is then... Uh, channeled into reproductive sexuality in particular, so that for Freud, even kissing was seen as perverse because it doesn't lead mm. directly to reproduction. <laughs> um, and um, that's one of the reasons that for me, I'm like, this term perversity could mean something very different. Um, and so that sense of can we stay more open to polymorphous perversity? Can we stay more open to the various ways in which human beings might live out their lives and do so in ethical ways um, that are not simply the organization toward a patriarchal and reproductive sexuality? That's what Freud thought had to happen. Um, And what we've learned since uh, the time that Freud is writing is, you know, that doesn't really have to happen. We can have a society um, where uh, people pursue all different kinds of relationships that can be highly ethical and that can support community and that can support the raising of children. You know, one of the things many people are learning in the pandemic is how much better it is when we have a whole community supporting the raising of children rather than parents having to do everything uh, within one household. And it's that sense of a polymorphous life where we're not busy uh, policing each other, but in fact are are helping to support each other. Uh, as you say, marriages can be very hard. Relationships can be very hard. The more support we can provide for them as a society, the better. And indeed, the whole idea of, of nuclear family, this is it. This is the only way you can do it. That's not the case in a lot of history and a lot of different cultures around the world that seem to go pretty well. As, you know, Hillary and no doubt others used to say, it takes a village. Well, it does. And as I think as you're saying, you know, being supportive of one another is, is very being ethical. It's very different from the, the political divides that unfortunately are there. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're speaking with Janet Jacobson, author of the new book, The Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics. And I remember back in the 50s, rock and roll was under fierce attack, attack by white male supremacists uh, in its early days. Black and white kids dancing together. Oh my, that, you know, pretended possible sexual relations between black and white kids. Little Richard, 
who passed away recently, was a perfect foil for the racist white male supremacist with his ambiguous but powerful sexuality. I, I thought this interesting. His biographer, Charlie, Charles White's uh, Little Richard, uh, wrote that Richard's intended effect, intended effect, I like this, was to shake off the chains of repression. He says that Richard freed people from their inhibitions, unleashing their spirit, enabling them to do exactly what they felt like doing, to scream, shout, dance, jump up and down, or even more unusual things. Along the le these lines is a great movie, I, which deserves to be seen more, I think, called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, in which the very last words in the movie are spoken by Chuck Berry. He says, I love the sound of rock and roll. It's the sound of freedom. Your thoughts on the connection between rock and roll and black and white kids dancing together and getting out from under sexual repression and the, and the chance to be free from inhibitions. I, and I can see why rock and roll scared very many uh, white supremacists uh, back in the day. Well, yeah, and this is one of the basic questions um, in the United States, particularly given its racial history, which is what does freedom mean? Uh, the historian Robin D.G. Kelly wrote a book called Freedom Dreams, which is about the ways in which black liberation movements were not just movements for social justice. They were dreams about what freedom could mean for people, um, not what it meant um, in a society that had embraced freedom and yet at the same time enslaved people, but what it could mean. Um, and those traditions about black liberation, including church traditions about black liberation, I was... Um, uh, uh, trained in, um, you know, uh, religious ethics, and so I have was given a lot of education in African American freedom movements and and what their ethical claims were, and and in Latin American liberation theology as well. Uh -huh. What could freedom mean? Um, and this music, rock and roll, came out of uh, black traditions that, in fact, embraced those freedom dreams. Uh, one of my colleagues um, in, at Columbia University, Joseph Surrett, has written a really interesting book that looks at the aesthetics of, of um, black music in part in relation to the black church. Um, and so part of what was happening, especially in the 50s, was an opening to a combination of new visions of racial freedom, new visions of uh, sexual freedom and their interrelation. You know, many historians now talk about the long civil rights movement, about the ways in which what we see as the civil rights movement of the 60s was building over the 20th century to that time. Um, and some of what's happening in the 50s with rock and roll is part of that long civil rights movement toward both racial and sexual liberation. Yeah, cultural expansion, you know, not just one, you know, white male-dominated culture, uh, that can help us a lot. And it's interesting how frightened they are of losing that. The conventional wisdom answer to why is sexual politics so central in America is religion. Yeah, we're a pretty religious-oriented country. You argue that religion is not the sole or even the primary force behind the prominence of sexual politics in our country. Why, then, why does it seem so central, religion? Well, yeah. Well, and one of the reasons it seems so central is we tell this story over and over and over again. And most importantly, everybody to, not everybody, but most people party to what's called the culture wars tell the story this way. So religious conservatives uh, tell the story this way. They say, we are religious. Um, our religious commitments are to a certain form of uh, sexual ethics and sexual politics. And that tells us whether we are moral people and whether the, the nation is a moral nation. 
Um, on the other side, oftentimes, um, uh, gay people, I have a colleague named Michael Cobb who wrote a book on this, that um, tell the story that, yeah, religion is our biggest problem. If we just were re- less religious, um, then there would be more sexual liberation. And similarly, when media report on the culture wars, they often similarly, and this is right, left, it doesn't matter. You know, I look at a lot of liberal media, places like the New York Times, um, the New Yorker, places like that, that um, also tell the story, yeah, sure, the problem is religion. So if we were just secular, it would be better. Um, and basically, my argument is that each point in this story is, um, not accurate, that there are plenty of secular investments in sexual regulation, and one of the chapters in the book runs from the Clinton administration uh, through the Trump administration to try to show how at each point, Democrat or Republican, there are certain commitments to a sexual politics that undergird things like economic policy, immigration, um, health care, uh, policing, and, and punishment. Um, uh, so that, that that sense that this story about religion doesn't allow us to see what those uh, secular commitments can be, um, and it also doesn't allow us to see religious people who have a liberatory ethic, um, mm-hmm. and so it narrows our sense of what religion is, and in fact, it tends to narrow it from, you know, religion to what people are really talking about is Christianity, what they're really talking about is conservative Christianity, yes. what they're really talking about is sexually conservative Christianity, and it just becomes more and more narrow. And what I want to do is open the whole conversation up so that we could talk more broadly about religious people who have different commitments, so that we could attend to uh, secular sexual regulation, and so that there would be more moral parties to the conversation. Boy, I like the sound of that, I, I have to say. I mean, you know, for many, many years, decades really, homosexuals and sexually liberated people were left out of religion. They, they felt... The, the people running the, the churches, etc., didn't welcome uh, homosexuals and others. And does it have to be? Does, does, does homosexuality and, you know, other, you know, strains of, of sexuality, does that necessarily mean a loss for the religious interests? Yes, and my argument is it doesn't have to. It depends so, yeah. on what your religious interests are. Um, that sexual ethics vary across religious traditions. It's also often invoked as if all religious traditions share every sexual ethic. This is not so. Um, And, you know, I have a colleague at Temple University who is a Reconstructionist rabbi who argued for a long time um, that uh, in her religious tradition she could marry both gay and straight people, so the law should not be preventing her, allowing her to act as the representative of the state for straight people and not for gay people. That was her religious freedom. You know, that's mm-hmm. what her tradition is, is supporting. Um, and, you know, so that sense that there's variation um, across religions and even within a given religion um, over the course of time, you know, <laughs> these are long histories we're talking about. Um, and so the reason, and, and you've alluded to this a lot, once we think of Christianity as tied to a certain um, white Christian nationalism in the United States, then what becomes at stake is not what's your religious ethic, of which it could be many, many different things, um, but rather the maintenance of the dominance of, of, of that particular idea of religion as the one that everybody should share, at least in terms of public discourse. And what I argue for instead is a version of freedom in which 
there may be many people who have a religious commitment to conservative sexuality, but that does not mean that they can impose that on yes. um, other people. What a concept, not imposing your views on other people. Sounds basically American, I, really foundational. Now, talking about history in the 1950s, couples on TV slept in separate beds. Sex just <laughs> didn't exist. Often it considered a private concern. You suggest that sex rightly belongs in our public discourse. Why? And what do you mean? Yes, well, first of all, it's there. Um, you know, so in um, looking at the book and the ways in which uh, sexual politics is part of, for example, how we think about economic policy, right? We have a whole set of economic policies that are organized around a particular idea of family. So even the New Deal, which is seen by many people as, you know, sort of a height of progressive economic policy in the United States, still assumed a um, white male family wage earner. Um, and so that sense that you could have the structure of the of the um, uh, economic policy of the state organized around a particular idea of family means that um, sex, sexual politics is part of our um, uh, political life. Um, and then the second thing is I believe that political life can be uh, for the support of uh, the populace. Um, that we can, um, you know, develop democracy in its broadest sense. And what that would mean would, would be that we would think about policies that support um, all kinds of freedom dreams, uh, racial freedom, sexual freedom, that support all kinds of different organizations of um, uh, social life um, that, you know, may or may not be sexual. Just to give you an mm -hmm. example, uh, many people think about marriage in relation to whether they can provide insurance for somebody. And uh, my partner, you know, uh, we both uh, uh, have jobs, but her brother had MS. She could not have mm -hmm. provided, she could have provided insurance for me, but not for him. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, being able to help people um, that may not be within your nuclear family household and may in one time have been your brother, your sister, um, you know, caring for aged parents. These are all questions that uh, we could be looking at differently if we did not focus so much on the nuclear family as the only mm -hmm. uh, possible uh, 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 sexual arrangement. Amen to that, sister. <laughs> and having, you know, lots of people in my extended family are gay. And my, my brother, uh, he's been with the same guy for know, 40 years or so, maybe more by now. But, you know, if one of them was sick, they couldn't, you know, have access to uh, to the hospital, for example, and wills and things like that. Yeah. Thank goodness we've finally, well, at least legally gotten over that. You know, culture sometimes takes a little bit different tax in terms of how change actually happens. Now, we Americans often accuse people with rigid attitudes against actualized sexuality as puritanical. Now, unlike our Western European counterparts, Americans' obsession with sex is often attributed to the country's Puritan heritage. Is that not true, right? I mean, what, what, talk about yeah. that, please. Yeah, so this is more, uh, in this part of the book, I'm drawing on um, arguments that have been developed by my colleagues who are um, historians of American religion, but they would make two points about this. One, that the story of the puritanical origins of the United States is um, over, 
overdone. It doesn't tell the full history of um, uh, various types of uh, investments that led to the formation of the United States. And it also, of course, erases um, both the religions of uh, people who uh, lived in the early uh, colonial period as slaves and of people who were here, indigenous peoples. Um, so we need to be able to tell a different kind of story about the United States that doesn't start at Plymouth Rock. And that it's just not historically accurate. Hmm. And then the second thing is that, uh, contrary to what most people um, understand about the Puritans, uh, they were not necessarily puritanical hmm. in their approaches to sexuality. Um, and this comes from a book that two historians, John D'Amelio and Estelle Friedman, um, uh, did very early on, where they were, you know, looking at primary documents, and um, much that happened in uh, Puritan communities was uh, public. There was a lot of talking amongst the communities, and so there are records of how people um, thought about sexuality, and it was not, uh, you know, the most constrained uh, imagination possible. So, um, sort of on both counts, on the historical mm. import of what's called the Puritan heritage, and then what that heritage might be, um, the story is uh, misleading. What a surprise, history being misleading and common attitudes, often, so often wrong. And, you know, here we are in the United States. We're not that different from, from Europeans, except I think they pay a lot more attention to politics and, I don't know, just seem to be better educated. I know that's an overgeneralization, but hey, Europeans, I think, see us on this side of the pond, as it were, as obsessed with sex, the hypocrisy of being so down on non-procreative sex, yet being obsessed with it is, it's got to be curious to them. In what ways are they different? And is their attitude healthier? And, and how do you define healthy? A few questions there. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is a very, very interesting question. Um, as an aside, I, a friend of mine recommended to me a French television show that's a spy drama called The Bureau, in which... Um, uh, one of the main characters who is also the most beautiful person is a scholar. Um, and, you know, this would probably not happen in the United States. So I think there is something to be said for uh, different approaches to uh, education and culture. Um, but um, And to different approaches to sexual politics. It is not that, you know, there, there were a lot, there was a lot of tracing of how uh, politics around, debates around homosexuality and heterosexuality worked out uh, in the late 20th century, early 21st century in Europe as well. Um, so, for example, uh, there's a French scholar, um, Eric Fasson, who has done a lot of work on that. Um, and there was, in some places, more openness um, uh, to gay marriage or to other forms of uh, what at the time was gay civil union, but not everywhere. Um, so there's no way to have sort of a blanket set of distinctions. Uh, but uh, the sense that you can have different sexual sensibilities and democracy does not end um, is a helpful thing that this kind of comparative study across countries can can provide. I hope so. Uh, just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about sex and politics. The book is uh, called the Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics. Our guest is its author, Janet R. Jacobson. And uh, there's just so many different ways to look at it, different uh, angles, focuses to, uh, to see what this really means, the, the ethical, the political. And uh, it's interesting, when I was in the New Hampshire Senate, equal rights for all sexual identities often came up. It was defeated 
a number of times before we eventually legalized marriage equality. And I'll never forget kids from religious schools coming in and being disgusted. They insisted, there's no homosexuality among God's other creatures. It's just unnatural. <laughs> I, I imagine some people still believe that. What, what's your response to that? What do we know about animals? Yeah, we we know. I mean, we don't know, uh, you know, uh, about uh, everything that all animals do, but we do know <laughs> that various animals uh, form their their worlds differently. Yes. Uh, some animals are monogamous, and some are monogamous uh, in both same sex and and uh, cross sex ways. Uh, some other animals, you know, have uh, very different sets of of arrangements uh, around sexuality, sure. around pack behavior, you know. Um, so if we were to, you know, fully put human beings in a broader animal kingdom, mm. uh, you know, uh, we would find that that does not tell us anything about how human beings should be. <laughs> and one of the things that I always found odd about that argument was that sense like, oh, yeah, we should just think of human beings as you know, animals as not different, which is the implication, well, if no animals do this, then humans can't. Right. Um, if you were to say, okay, we're just animals, um, many of the people who were making that argument about there are no gay penguins uh, would, in fact, be um, uh, offended uh, if you started talking about human beings as just animals. So I think yeah, that true. what we have learned is that we can learn many things about how um, creatures relate to each other that could be helpful in forming a political imagination, but that we can't uh, right. draw direct moral lessons from uh, animals to human beings. Yeah, we can vote. They can't. I wish they could. I'll tell you, my dog has great sense of who's a good person and who's not, but he's got no thumbs, so he can't vote. Uh, mm, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Gore Vidal, whom I, I admired his writing tremendously, he was very clear in his belief that we're all a little straight, a little gay. As with autism... I'm getting the sense that there's also a spectrum, that no one is entirely either. Is that assessment accurate? And if so, what does it mean for ethics and politics, for that matter, if there is a spectrum of sexuality? Yeah. Yeah, and it's very hard to know because um, one of the things that, that uh, uh, my colleague, Rebecca Jordan-Young, who is a sociomedical scientist, works on is uh, the sense in which scientific narratives have a very hard time reading data um, that could push us outside of these common sense narratives, right? So she wrote a book called Brainstorm that was about the idea that there are gendered brains. And um, she shows how the data are that, that, prove, that supposedly prove this um, are often formed more by cultural narratives than, than uh -huh. um, by data themselves, by the data themselves. Um, so it's hard to know exactly, sure. but I think that what we can say is that people report anecdotally all different kinds of experiences of sexuality. Some people re report, yes, I knew my sexuality from the time I was three, and some people uh, report uh, being open in various ways for their entire lives, and other people report that they were um, open as a younger person, and then uh, once they became, you know, mm -hmm. in their mid-20s, in their mid-30s, whatever, they came to understand themselves in a certain way, I'm gay, I'm straight, whatever it is. And and so I think that, that if we attend um, to the way that people are able to, you know, narrate their own experiences, we certainly would see something that's more like um, a spectrum. You know, the Kinsey studies and and the like from the 1950s tried to codify this more, and um, they provided, you know, a really important 
important opening to uh, public discourse, but uh, whether we can depend on them scientifically is is another question. And I, I would think that having these, you know, narrow boundaries, you know, gay or straight or whatever, it's constricting. And there's there's really yeah. why do that? What's the, what's the benefit from that? I I just don't see it. And it's easy to view gender and sexuality as one-dimensional issues that be, can be considered in isolation. But you contend they must be viewed within a matrix of issues, including class, race, and religion. What, what difference does that make? Yes, and this comes, uh, you know, it's something that I learned from black feminism, from, um, you know, approaches like uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's idea of intersectionality, that we all live in the middle of... Uh, gender, sexual, racial, class, um, you know, national religious relations, questions like disability, um, and that when we try to pull one out, um, it, one, it impoverishes um, our discourse, but two, it means that we can do things like set up simple binary oppositions. Um, so people are gay or straight, as you were just saying. That seems rather narrow. Life isn't like that. And in fact, the way in which uh, a whole set of questions around sexuality work out depends on uh, what kind of religious community you're in, what kind of uh, you know racial community you might find yourself in. These are all questions that that um, actually are lived in complex realities. Um, and the other point the book makes is not just about the way that we live these things where they're all together. Um, you know, you're not like today I'm waking up and having my gendered self, and then the next day yeah. you're waking up and having your religious self, right? Um, but that um, when we talk about them politically, one of the ways that these issues work out is they're used in relation to each other and sometimes against each other in ways that keep the powerful powerful and keep those uh, without power or who are marginalized marginalized. Um, and so the book is trying to think about how can we think these things together so as not to allow that playing one issue off against another mm. to... Um, uh, 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 work on behalf of the powerful. And you're right. The the you know the white Protestant males like to dominate. They really want to dominate and control. We have a president who's obsessed with domination and control, uh, not particularly healthily, I think. But the idea of more expansive, you know, what's what's the harm there? I I just it's it's kind of exciting, really, that that we can see beyond such narrow boundaries. You've made the argument that sexual politics is a First Amendment issue. I, as a big fan of the First Amendment, how so? Yes, and this is from um, my previous book that you mentioned in the introduction that I wrote with my good colleague Anne Pellegrini, which is really um, uh, looking at the relationship between religious freedom and sexual freedom. And, and um, you know, much has changed, but much has changed, stayed the same since that book was, was published in the early 2000s. But um, the idea is this. If it is true, as many people claim, that um, a certain conservative religious ethic is based on religious commitment, um, then it is also true that religious freedom should mean that that commitment cannot be imposed on others. Um, and so what that means is if sexual politics is religious, and many religious people claim that it is, then it is subject to religious freedom, meaning not religious freedom that is simply in defense of Christianity as it's now used, mm -hmm. but religious freedom in which everyone's religious commitments or lack thereof are respected. 
Um, and that, one of the things that's been very hard about, you know, especially this time from 2015 when I started writing the book is, you know, I'd already written a book on religious freedom, so I didn't feel that should be the focus of this one. And I somewhat regret it now because mm. in just the last four or five years, religious freedom has become more and more narrowed and more and more geared toward um, simply respecting Christianity yes. so that, you know, the same Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, who could um, uh, support Trump's ban on mostly Muslim um, countries, the so-called travel ban, people from mostly Muslim mm -hmm. countries, um, you know, which is clearly religious discrimination, um, that, and at the same time claimed that this administration was going to promote religious freedom more than any in the past. Um, and that claim was based on the idea that it was going to support a certain form of Christianity, more mm -hmm. than any in the past, not religious freedom for everyone, and especially not for Muslims. Yeah, I, I do find it uh, interesting when they say religious freedom. That what they really mean is, you know, white Christian male-dominated religion dominating all others. That is not freedom. It's it's freedom for them and nobody else. But I I don't know how people can say that's religious freedom, but they do. Um, Republicans today have moved to what used to be called the far right. What used to be seen as the vital center is now pictured as the left in the context of attitude towards sex and gender. Are there long-standing points of consistency between the parties that often go unrecognized? And what would those be? Yes, so, um, uh, yes, so there are. That's, that's, I'm so glad that you asked that because, of course, usually what people see is um, the Democrats are more open um, sex, around sexual politics and Republicans are more conservative. But some of the longstanding um, issues uh, that um, hold force are, for example, uh, the support of the nuclear family as the way to imagine the site of government uh, sustenance. So, you know, the government supports home mortgages. It supports, um, you know, as I was saying, the idea of a single family wage. It does a much poorer job in supporting child care for, for example, when women uh, want to go to work. Um, and that sense that what the government is there for is to support a single mm -hmm. um, family formation um, is pretty consistent uh, since at least the the Second World War um, and probably even since the 30s. So, um, you know, the 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 first half of the 20th century, many people were still living in extended families, whether it was urban sure. families. My father was an immigrant. They grew up in, or the son of an immigrant, the, they grew up in, you know, an extended family or rural uh, you know, extended families. But what historians argue is that after the Second World War, and particularly with suburbanization, tract housing, et cetera, the nuclear family comes to the fore. Um, and that consistency across Democrats um, or Republicans, and in almost all public policy, um, has been really detrimental. Um, it's meant that many people have trouble putting their lives together. Uh, it's, you know, had significant impact on the availability of housing on environmental issues and the way in which we've turned, uh, I grew up in Iowa, cornfields into um, uh, housing tracts instead of farms. You know, the, there's just a lot that uh, uh, this government policy has done that has not necessarily benefited the world. And I do think perhaps, perhaps this pandemic is an opportunity. We see people going back to the farms and working together as a community is starting to happen. I mean, necessity being the mother of invention, it's, it's happening. One of the things that is particularly ugly about 
the Trump administration was the family separation, the caging of immigrant children. There is, you say, a continuity that links these attitudes and policies to those who came before. Please explain what you mean by that. Yeah, immigration is really, really interesting um, uh, question in the United States uh, uh, because over the course of the 20th century, um, we became more and more constrictive about immigration, uh, even as we were doing things to liberalize it. So um, a historian uh, who happens to be my colleague at Columbia, May Nye, has written a very important book on immigration, um, which shows that the way in which we count uh, immigrants and have quotas, whether those quotas are about families or about um, people who fit your, certain job categories and the like, um, are not the way that immigration has always been, but in fact that we've become more and more controlled about immigration. Um, and that the way in which, you know, people used to come to the country, which is one, you know, they initially came as, as colonists and then, um, uh, you know, just come to the country, yeah. give your name and uh, move on, yep. right? There was mm-hmm. no sense you had to have a visa and all this paperwork and everything. It's very interesting that we now think about immigrants as undocumented because you didn't have to have documents. No, of course not. <laughs> um, and so that sense about um, uh, the need to control immigration, again, that's something that the parties have agreed on. Uh, uh, the President Clinton sent a big buildup of uh, Border Patrol to uh, the southern border. So we don't think of the 1990s as this big focus on immigration, but in fact, Clinton did build up the Border Patrol. And um, anytime you build up policing, we have learned, you know, in ways that are just truly heartbreaking, you build up the possibility for abuse of that policing. Um, and we see that then in, in child separation and, and in other forms of violence at the border. And, and um, you know, I, I find it heartbreaking myself that, oh. that that should happen. And once again, if you are a family values person, mm-hmm. um, the idea that that would be the way in which you would enforce it, that's one of the things about taking, not looking at issues in, in relation to race or religion or nationalism, but just thinking about sexuality. Family values cannot mean separating children from their parents at the border unless it's also in service of um, another set of issues. One would think that family values meant not separating families and caging children. But then again, here we are. This is not the 21st century that I envisioned back in the hopeful, optimistic 60s, I'll tell you. And I know you'd go through some of the uh, uh, history of the, the turmoil and change in the 1970s, that there were some really big tectonic shifts that began back then that continue to be felt today. What are some of those as we're as we're discussing this topic? Yeah, and some of those are economic. I mean, one of the things that that we've seen since the 1970s that there was this post-war economic expansion in which all kinds of um, opportunity expansion, you know, public education at the higher education level in the United States expanded greatly. For example, so many more people could um, uh, get a higher education. There was a a lot of uh, economic uh, mobility and possibility. Um, from the 1970s forward, that started to shut down um, for various reasons, but it has led to an approach to economic policy that supports extremely high levels of inequality, that makes uh, shareholder value the primary thing that corporations should be looking at. So, um, you know, when we think about something like, uh, you know, the major, you know, as GM goes, so goes the nation, those corporations, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there are many people who are critical of them and, and um uh, but at the same time, they were geared toward the idea of having a workforce that was steady, 
um, and stable and unionized and that could support, um, including carbine, you know, could support a certain standard of living, whereas now uh, we have moved away from uh, that view of what corporations should be doing, um, and instead uh, they should just produce value for shareholders. And, and what that means is that um, uh, we don't have a lot of mechanisms in which to ensure that um, uh, people have access to even the basics of uh, life, meaning yes. health care, food, housing, you know, it's harder and harder to get housing. It's that those sets of shifts uh, that we've seen since the 1970s uh-huh. that mm. have intensified a whole set of uh, uh, political problems that, that we're now experiencing, including the pandemic. Really? How? Well, with the, ac- the questions about access to health care, but also access uh-huh. to um, jobs and support for jobs, right? So the politics, you know, we just saw this happen in July where the Congress could not come to terms to renew support for people who had lost their jobs because of the pandemic. This is something that should not be politically difficult or challenging, Mm -hmm. but because of certain politics that I would see as punitive, which is the idea that, oh, if you don't want to work in a bad job, that must mean that you're an irresponsible person. We can't, given you the most basic thing to get through a global pandemic of, um, you know, unemployment insurance support um, will lead you not to want to work. That's the Republican argument. Um, And that argument is not something that we would necessarily have um, seen carry the political day uh, in the 1960s. And so what I'm interested in is, you know, that economic shift has something to do with how we think about, uh, you know, what families can be and what they can look like. And dominance and control of corporations over the rest of us. And it's interesting how yeah. people who call themselves conservative, you know, may look back to the 1950s. But we actually, it was in a way not quite so corporate dominated back then as it is now. Of course, black people didn't exist as far as America uh, went back then. But uh, yeah, the, the, it's surprising how history takes turns that are that turn out to be unpredictable. You go over some uh, uh, legal decisions, and and the law is, you know, undergirds everything. There was that decision, Obergefell versus Hodges, that seemed like the, you know, the the end of the long journey to equality for LGBT people. Um, But not that much was different, I guess. And there was also the uh, U.S. versus Windsor, which struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, which was terrible act. Some liken the event to the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was pretty great. You contend that framing all such milestones within a, quote, progress narrative loses much. That's interesting. Why do you say that? What do you mean? Yeah, so um, one of the things I look at is is uh, in 2013, the Defense of Marriage Act um, uh, law, so that was before the uh, the overturning of Defense of Marriage Act, which was before the Obergefell in 2015, which made same-sex marriage legal. But in that week, in 2013, um, the court did things that were progressive in the sense of overturning the Defense of Marriage Act, and also, one could argue, were terribly uh, conservative, if not regressive. One, on affirmative action that had sort of uh, mixed results, and then um, overturning the protections, certain protections of the Voting Rights Act, um, which has allowed for a lot of state-level voter suppression, much of which is organized around uh, race. Um, and so that loss of the Voting Rights Act, to my mind, has had tremendous consequences. And yet that week, the focus on the Supreme Court was 
of the court as this move toward consistent liberation in which civil rights had happened in the past, um, and the next step on that path of progress uh, was gay liberation. And because we couldn't look at them in relation to each other, the fact that we had lost something so crucial to voting rights um, was largely overlooked. And by this, I mean that if you were to do a, a search of a newspaper reporting on what happened in that week and the week following, the number of articles on the gay marriage decision were many times, I don't have the exact numbers mm. before me, many times larger than the number of articles on the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so part of what I became interested uh. in is if we tell a story in which democracy expands, things only get better, step by step, and it's hard, we miss the ways in which, in fact, um, equality keeps not happening. Uh. So this one of the questions for that chapter is, look, we supposedly value equality um, you know, uh, very highly, and yet we seem as a country not to be able to manage to make our country equal. What is that about? And what I came mm. to see is that equality kind of goes around and around um, instead of just being this path from one step to another right. step to another to greater equality. So it's not that there aren't any changes. Um, you know, it's just that those changes don't produce a lasting uh, a sense that our society is, is more equal. Right. Um, and, you know, we've seen that economically with this intensified inequality, and uh, we certainly have seen it around voting rights where, um, you know, uh, the death of John Lewis brought this to mm. the fore in a way that was truly melancholy, where he had, as a young person, fought for voting rights, and those very same battles, um, you know, there was a case in Florida about what was effectively a poll tax for people yes. who... Um, uh, had been um, convicted of felonies, and the people of Florida had voted in a referendum to say, no, they have voting rights. And the state legislator ha legislature had tried to say, well, they have to pay certain fees, which was effectively a poll tax. So the idea that, you know, his whole life of incredible and really inspiring struggle could have brought us back around uh, to the point where we're having a case on a poll tax in Florida, that was the question of that chapter. How does that happen? Mm. Wouldn't it be nice if progress were that simple? Straight line progress yeah. just gets better all the time. Ha! Huh. Huh. Uh, the field of disability studies is mm. universal access. Having grown up with a brace myself, I'm always sympathetic to that. Huh? And it, it's, it's an aspiration, universal access, yeah. that can uh, illuminate marriage as well as many other issues of social justice. In what ways? How, how is that kind of a, 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 an example? Yes, yeah, so um, my partner, uh, Christina Crosby, lives with a spinal cord injury, is, is paralyzed, uses a wheelchair. And um, so, you know, this is something that I've thought about a lot, uh, you know, similar to your experience. Sure. It really uh, can make you change how you view the world in certain ways. Um, and the idea among the disability activist community about um, universal access is that a lot of what blocks people from being able to um, uh, that makes them actually more disabled, that blocks them from being able to participate fully in society, is the way our social world is built, mm. whether it's that, you know, um, you know, stairs all over the place for sure. a wheelchair user, whether it's, a, um, you know, people's inability to understand, um, you know, sign language. We don't use sign language widely, whether it's, you know, not having, um, you know, Braille widely available. There are all kinds of ways in which we could make a world that is... Um, it makes it more possible for disabled people to participate yes. in public life. And one of the things that, that the disability 
activist community has found, that world often makes it better for everybody Absolutely. or almost yep. everybody. I, you know, so, I couldn't agree more. I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, everybody has something to contribute to the world. I doesn't matter their ability, disability. Everybody has something to contribute. And just, you know, it's not sure. I'm not sure what we can do now, but it's often the basis for endless division, sexual politics is. You say sexual politics can contribute to the building of justice from the ground up. How might it be starting to deliver on such a promise. What what possibility does it hold as part of your title of your book? Well, yeah. I mean, there, there, there are a couple examples in the book, and then one that I, I would uh, show from the pandemic, too. But from the book, I look at AIDS activism. You know, I came of age um, uh, around, uh, sure. I graduated from college in the early 80s when AIDS was just coming on the scene. And um, what participated in AIDS activism, and one of the things we learned is that people have to take care of each other, and that yes. um, sexual cultures, sexual communities, um, uh, learned various ways to care for each other during that crisis. Um, you know, people who didn't have familial support, for example, um, you know, or organizations, gay organizations, and and um, just local sort of mutual aid societies made a buddy system so that you could always have somebody that you could count on when you were sick. Uh, to help you that these kinds of communities that were not organized around familial form or sexual partnership necessarily, but that were organized around a sexual culture, um, help people to survive uh, in that pandemic. And, you know, similarly now, one of the things that I've seen some articles on, um, uh, there was one uh, that I saw an interview that Naomi Klein did on this, Mm. which is people who are living in various sort of alternative housing arrangements like co-housing, which is Mm -hmm. where um, different uh, social units, families with children, what you know, couples, not couples, single people, what have mm-hmm. you, live uh, where they have their own space and also shared space, um, uh, that those people are having an easier time getting through this pandemic ah, in the same way that, that an AIDS sexual culture um, provided ways to get through that pandemic. And it's because they're within, um, you know, sort of already built pods where people can care for each other, and other people are forming these kinds of pods. Um, you know, there was an essay in The New Yorker on mutual aid, and that, that sense of mutual aid of cultures that are organized around sometimes sexual partnership and um, uh, that form of openness that um, queer politics has often indicated that those kinds of communities are are trying to find ways to care for each other through this pandemic. Um, and some people are just making various kinds of pods that are not necessarily their family, but these mm-hmm. six people are the people with whom I'm going to interact during this pandemic, and we're going to help each other get groceries and those kinds of things. Um, and um, it's those kinds of uh, communal caring, collective caring, uh, that uh, sexual politics can contribute to, um, and that becomes very important as we see during these you know, times of pandemic, for example. Well, I love to end on an optimistic note. This is You're talking about some real possibilities of liberation. The book is called yeah. The Sex Obsession, uh, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics. Its author, our guest, has been Janet Jack- Jacobson, and it's put out by NYU Press. Thank you so much for being with us today, and, and I love the sense of uh, hopefulness. Imagine. Thank you. I'm so glad that that's where we're ending. Thank you.